Amen. Thank you, Caitlin. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you guys. How's everybody doing? You good? Good. Is it your birthday today, Stephanie? Happy birthday, Stephanie. Yeah. Uh, my wife texted me that and said to embarrass you from the stage. So uh, I didn't get you anything, but you can have two communions today. So that's it. Welcome, if you're new, my name's Aaron, I'm one of the pastors here, glad to have you. We as a church are going through a teaching series called All Things New, in which we look at the way that the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, renews every aspect of us as individuals, as us as a church community, and even into the world around us. The Lord Jesus, the, the Lord Jesus is seated on a throne, ruling and reigning, and he says, behold, I make all things new. We believe that the gospel is the powerful message of God unto salvation for all who would believe, for the Jew first and then to everyone else, every nation under the sun. And this good news must be told. And so our focus today is evangelism and how the message of the gospel, which is the message of our evangelism, the gospel itself renews us as we seek to share this good word with any and all who would listen. So will you pray with me? We're going to dive into this passage in 1 Peter 3. Lord, we give this time to you, God. We thank you that you have come on this rescue mission to save not only our souls, but to renew all things in heaven and on earth to reconcile all that has been broken, to make it all right, again, through the work of Jesus the Messiah. And I pray today, Lord God, that you would use me, you would use our singing, you would use our time around the table later, eating and drinking at the Lord's table, that you would use this time to stir our hearts with passion, to stir our hearts with affection for the gospel, for Jesus, the the one who has given his life for us. And Lord, would you guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And may our, our, our hearts be connected to you now in worship and in devotion. In Jesus' good name we pray. And everyone said, amen. There's a joke that goes around. There's a few different versions of the same exact joke. but The joke goes a little something like this. How can you tell if someone is a vegan? Don't worry, they'll let you know. Uh, <laughs> The same joke gets used of, of, of CrossFitters. How can, yeah, I, I heard somebody say it at the same time. How can you tell if someone does CrossFit? Don't worry, they're going to let you know. Which raises an important question. What if someone is a vegan who does CrossFit? Are they just going to explode? Like, which one comes out first? How do you know, right? The, the point being is when someone finds something that they deem valuable, something that has impacted their life or affected their life in a positive way, it is all too common, all too natural of a human response to want to share it with someone. For those of you who are parents or have had, uh, you know, been around younger children, you know that when they find something or they discover something, they want to let you know, Dad, there's this new, you know, book that I'm reading, and then they want to just tell you the entire plot very slowly on the drive to church. Or, oh, there's this, there's this new song I want to show you. It's some kid's song, and I'm going to play it for you maybe 144,000 times over the course of the next three days. And kids just have that natural exuberance. It's just a natural, common human thing to want to share something that you love with other people a new restaurant, a good book, an experience that you had. How much more should we, who have encountered Jesus, 
the love of God embodied, the, the grace of God poured out on the cross, the power of God displayed in the empty tomb, if we have really genuinely had an encounter with the crucified and risen Savior, how could we not want to get out and tell it to others? You know, it's interesting, you read through the gospel accounts, the, you know, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when Jesus would heal somebody or, or perform a miraculous sign or some sort of thing, forgiving sin, the people, what, what, what's the people's natural response? They would, they would want to go out and tell someone. And what did Jesus very often tell them not to do? Like, yeah, keep it quiet. And that's kind of a unique part, you know, a unique uh, time in the, the, the storyline of redemptive history because after Jesus died, after Jesus rose again, then he gave us this great commission. Go into all the world. Tell everybody what has happened. Baptize them and, and make disciples of all people groups. Now we've been given this commission to go tell the wonderful work of Jesus. And I think that for some of us, Especially early on when we first meet Jesus, there's such a passion, there's such an excitement. Nobody has to tell us to go tell other people about Jesus. I remember my parents got saved when they were maybe in their, their early mid-20s, something like that, and they just will talk about those days of just, they just drove off every single one of their old friends from their old lifestyle, just obnoxious for the Lord. And I think that what happens for some of us, the longer we walk with Jesus, some of that passion fades, some of that energy fades, some of that zeal fades. And we can encounter a temptation to pull back from sharing the good news. Going back to my analogy of a little kid who finds something that they're really excited about, uh, you know, the, the excitement and the joy, and I can joke about it as a parent, we kind of get a little bit irritated with how exuberant they are over it. Have you ever seen a kid show another kid something that they were excited about and then get made fun of for it? It's pretty heart-crushing, right? To see just that look on a child's face, like, why would this peer of mine, why would somebody that... I care about or respect. Why would they not find the same excitement or the same joy when the little kid is met with mockery or even when they're just met with apathy? That child can start to want to pull back a little bit. And I think there's something in all of us, even for those of us who are grown-ups, we've still got that childlike part of us in there that doesn't want to experience that opposition. Now, the letter of 1 Peter was written to encourage um, exiles, followers of Jesus spread really kind of throughout the region of Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today. It's intended to be a cyclical letter. It was intended to be passed around to a group of different churches. And he's writing to encourage these people as exiles. They're not living in the promised land, so to speak. They are experiencing opposition, both soft forms of persecution like mockery and hard forms of persecution like imprisonment and beatings and even execution or death. And Peter is writing this letter to encourage followers of Jesus to keep on going and to keep Christ as their focus. The central command, the big idea, is found in our reading today in verses 14 and 15 where Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. How many of you read a verse like that and think, man, when I suffer for anything, I don't often use the hashtag blessed, right? When you suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. You are experiencing the good life. You are experiencing God's goodness for you when you suffer because of righteousness' sake. And then he quotes from, uh, from Isaiah 8. He says, do not fear them or be intimidated. And here's the central command right here. But in your heart, regard Christ the Lord as holy. 
ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, many of you may be familiar with the second part of that commandment, being ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But I would actually argue that that is not the primary command here. I would argue that the primary command in this passage is, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. What that will look like is you will then be ready at any time to give a defense when they ask you, why do you have so much hope? Don't fear them. Do fear the Lord and be ready to share. So how do I do that? How do I share and give a defense while making Christ holy in my own life so that I can share this good news. We're going to walk through four things. Number one, you need to know the background. What's underneath all of these things? Number two, you need to know Jesus as Lord and Messiah. Number three, you need to know how to respond to Jesus. And number four, you need to know how to respond to opposition or to barriers to the gospel. So let's start with a little bit of background here because... Imagine you're talking to someone in your life, a family member, a friend who does not believe in Jesus. You want to talk about Jesus. You want to help explain to them the good news of Jesus. But you need to recognize that for you, as a follower of Jesus, there's some information kind of running in the background that you may already be diverging from them before you even get to Jesus. So a few things like this. Number one, uh, the background that we believe that there is a God who created all things. We believe that there is one true God who created all things visible and invisible. That means that we as Christians are, by definition, we are supernaturalists. We believe that there is more than just the natural world. We believe that there is more than just what we can see, taste, smell, feel. What am I forgetting? Here, here, right? I have five senses. Six senses, maybe. I don't know. We as Christians believe this. And there are people in your life who do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior who do not believe this. They believe that the universe came into being maybe by accident. They believe maybe the universe always has existed. It's, you know, contracted and expanded in an infinite loop. Maybe some of the people in your life believe that aliens made all of this. I went through an ancient aliens phase during 2020. I'm willing to talk about it now. The pandemic, you know, kind of moving on. I I watched a lot of ancient aliens, uh, especially all the ones that were about the Bible. It's like Moses and the Ark of the Covenant, aliens. You know, Ezekiel and the wheel within a wheel, alien. Everything was aliens. And it was so interesting because I like studied it like it's an alternative religion. It was fascinating to see something that to me seemed so outlandish. And remember, there are people that view my views about the universe and the world in the same sort of a way. They think that what I believe is outlandish. We believe that God created all things. So this is contra-materialism. We believe that humans bear the image of God. That humans uh, are not merely the most randomly lucky, uh, you know, mammal to accidentally evolve up a ladder to where now we have opposable thumbs and can use those opposable thumbs to play Taylor Swift songs on Spotify. Uh, Don't eek. Come on. Listen, she is brilliant. I'm going to fight you in the parking lot later, okay? Uh, I know, I came in loaded for bear. I'm sorry, guys. But here's the deal. Human beings 
we believe, bears something unique in the image of God. And I've talked about this before. It could mean something in our role that we were given. It could mean something in the, the, the way that we are in our nature. It could also mean something relationally. Theologians discuss and, and debate about what the Bible teaches about the image of God. But the thing that we can all agree on as Christians, as followers of God, that's running in the background is humans are unique. We're not just a lucky animal. We were uniquely made by God, uniquely designed by God to bear his image and to proclaim who he is in the world. So that is already another point of divergence from many people in our society who don't believe that there is anything unique about humans. In fact, there have been some really um, interesting, sad, tragic, disturbing trends in uh, a movement, I can't remember what the, the title of the movement is, but it's basically an anti-childbirth movement where the people in Portland just recently having a big protest waving signs and banners says stop having children because the view is human beings do more harm than we do good and so the planet and nature would be better off without humans. I'm glad we've got squeaky little kids like Miss Elliot over there, you know. <laughs> Image bearer of God. You preach, little girl. Let's go. Number three. We believe, as Christians, that something has gone terribly wrong. Something has gone terribly wrong, not only in the world at large, but if we're being honest, in here, inside of us. Be honest. How many of you live up perfectly to your own personal moral code of conduct? Not a single person does. And people, people have differing, you know, most people would say, yes, there, there's something wrong in the world. There are some who would say, no, it's all just an illusion. Pain is an illusion. Suffering is an illusion. So this is where we'd part ways with um, certain strands of Buddhism, certain strands of New Ageism. Something is definitely wrong with the world. But then the answer to the question of what is wrong with the world, we will differ on. Some people say it's society. Some people say it's power. It's politics. It's money. We, as followers of Jesus, believe that the fundamental thing that has gone wrong is sin. Human sin. We as humanity have said we would like to live life on our own terms. We would like to define good and bad on our own terms. We would like to eat from that forbidden fruit, so to speak, to say we will define what's good and bad. We will live life on our own terms. We will be our own Lord and Master, not God. And that underlying every other problem in the world, from war to to poverty to racism to sexism to all of it, is human sin. And lastly, we believe, though, that God made a promise to make things right. And what that means for us, this this also is a point of divergence because there are a lot of people who believe in a God, but this God is the God of deism. The God of deism is like a a clockmaker who wound everything up and just kind of set it out there and said, all right, humans, have at it, and you make this all work. No, the God of the Bible is active and involved in his creation. Amen, church? The God of the Bible is not distant and aloof and removed. There's a lot of deism that was really prevalent around the time of the the founding of our nation. A lot of the founding fathers were deists, and they use a lot of the same sort of language about the architect or the designer or providence. But what they mean is kind of a cold, impersonal God who stands off and says, you made this mess, you fix it. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, we're not deists. We're theists. We believe in a personal, knowable, active, and involved God. So this is all running in the background. You could see how it might be difficult even to get to Jesus because of all of these points of divergence with someone. 
more so in our culture maybe than at the time of the writing of this letter. I think that there would have been more openness to supernaturalism in, in the ancient Near Eastern world, but they also believed in a multiplicity of gods and would have bristled against the claim that there is only one true God. So there's some similarities and there's some differences, but we need to know this background. We need to know at least this much before we can even start to talk about Jesus. And this background may help you in conversations with non-believers because it's, it, this is where many of our paths diverge. Now, we're going to get to Jesus. Number one, know the background. Number two, you've got to know the Messiah. Now, this Messiah, his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in verse 21 he is called. And this, the Christ is a word, it's not a name, it's a title. It means Messiah, it means king, it means anointed one. Christ and Messiah are, Christ is the New Testament Greek word, Messiah is the Old Testament Hebrew word. They mean the same thing. But the point is, is that Jesus, the Messiah, is the culmination of the entire storyline of Israel. The entire storyline that we read in the Hebrew scriptures, everything before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is all of God's promise, all of God's buildup, all of God laying this foundation, God laying out all of these plans to show us what his redemption and what his rescue plan looks like. We are entire Bible Christians, Sound City Bible Church. We don't just do the New Testament and sometimes the Psalms. We are going to do Leviticus in May because I would say that we can't really understand the life and work of Jesus without understanding books like Leviticus, without going through books like Judges, without looking at things like Isaiah and Ezekiel and the prophets, not to find aliens, to find Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the whole storyline. And, and, and uh, the Apostle Peter says that he is holy. We're to regard the Lord Christ as holy. And we are, boy, are we going to dive into this subject in Leviticus. But, but the summary, holy, means utterly unique, completely set apart. When you hear the word holy, you probably think something like morally right and morally good. Holiness includes that, but it's bigger than that. Holiness is, he is just unlike anyone or anything that has ever lived. Holiness, when we talk about who Jesus is, he's holy, he's unique, he's the one and only eternal son that, that, that proceeds from the Father from eternity past. Jesus was no mere rabbi, he was no mere teacher, he was no mere prophet, he was all of those things, but he is holy, the God of Israel. This is the Jesus that we believe in and worship and follow. He is utterly unique. And Peter tells us that he is our substitute, the, the righteous for the unrighteous. In verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Amen. This is the good news. That Jesus, though he was holy, utterly unique, set apart, perfect in all of his ways, he's the righteous one. He substituted himself in our place for our sin that we might be brought back to God. Jesus is our substitute. And he's not only the crucified substitute, he's victorious, ruling and reigning. It says uh, in, in verse 20, 
uh, 22, 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was raised by the Spirit in, in verse 18. He was made alive, that Jesus did not stay dead. And in just a couple of short weeks, we're going to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. But really, church, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday because it was on that Sunday morning that Jesus got up out of the grave and declared death to be dead. So we believe that we follow a crucified substitute who is now victorious, made alive by the Spirit, and now he is ruling, ascended into heaven, reigning over all angels, authorities, and powers, that Jesus is in charge, and we have no higher allegiance other than King Jesus. He demands our loyalty. He is never voted out of office. He can't be uh, run out through a coup. He will stand as our King, our Christ, our Messiah forever and ever and ever. And one day he will return and we will see his rule made visible on the earth. And until that day, we are to get the news out and be faithful to him. Jesus is the subject of our evangelism. Jesus is the subject of what it is that we have to share. You do not have a church to share. You do not have a preacher to share. You do not have a warm, fuzzy feeling to share. You do not have a best friend to share. You may have all of those things that you love and enjoy. I'm grateful for our church. I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that my preaching is appreciated and helpful. I, I hope and pray that in your community group, you really love each other well and serve each other well. But at the end of the day, the message is the Messiah. At the end of the day, we have no gospel to preach other than Christ and him crucified. And all of these things that the Apostle Peter tells us about Jesus. This is our message. This is our message. No bait and switch, no tricks and gimmicks, no cart before the horse. It's Jesus or nothing else. You guys with me on this so far? So you got to know the background. you got to know kind of what the Bible teaches and what's running in the background. You have to know the Messiah, the subject of our evangelism. Number three, you personally have to know how to respond. And there are, there are two responses given in this passage. The first response is repentance. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Now, if Jesus is righteous, and if the unrighteous are the ones who get brought near to God, what does that mean about you and I? On our own, we are unrighteous. Apart from Christ, we are not good. Now, many of us like to think that God grades on the curve, and as long as we can be in line next to someone who's worse than we are, we'll be okay. But this is not what Jesus taught, that is not what the apostles taught, that is not the message of the scripture from top to bottom. The standard, the bar, is not on a curve. It's not good enough. It's not more good deeds than bad deeds. What is the standard that is taught for our morality? Perfection. Be perfect as your God in heaven, as your Father in heaven is perfect. How many of you have failed to be perfect just this weekend alone? Okay? 
And so we come to this realization. This is why we do the confession every single week in our, in our time of singing in liturgy is to remind ourselves time and time again that we come weak, wounded, sick, sore, sinful, frail. We come as a mess and we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. So the first response to this message of the Messiah has got to be repentance. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without a message of repentance, I'm sorry, it is sub-Christian. You can find churches that will tell you all the live long day how much God loves you, and he does love you. But if they leave out the fact that he loves you in spite of your sins and has given the precious blood of his son Jesus to atone for your wrongdoing, I'm sorry, that church is not offering you the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're offering you an emotional band-aid. We need the gospel. And so the response is repentance. And as Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, once said, the entire life of a Christian is marked by repentance. We just, we keep coming back. Lord, I've not yet achieved perfection. You are incredibly patient. You are incredibly gracious. Forgive me once again. Restore me once again. Build me up once again. And then our hearts are set on fire with the love of God because we know because Christ died and rose again, our sins are forgiven and we are made new every single day. His mercies are new but it takes repentance. This is a difficult one for many of us to have to humble ourselves and say, yeah, I am the unrighteous and I need him, the righteous one, to be my substitute. The second response that the apostle Peter calls out is allegiance. In verse 21, he says, baptism now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you are used to hearing the word repentance followed by believe, like repent and believe, or repentance and faith. And and I believe that that is what is in mind here, this idea of a pledge, but I, I like the word allegiance here to bring out another nuance or another aspect of what we are called to when we hear this good news about Jesus. Peter highlights faith in a more active way. You guys remember in the book of James, where the apostle James highlights it as well? He says, look, you can say you have faith, but you got to demonstrate it with your actions. I believe that there's something similar running here for the apostle Peter. He's saying, you're going to repent of your sins, and you're going to put your faith actively in Jesus. And the primary or the initial way of showing and demonstrating that is by going through the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism. By the way, some of you, depending on what translation you're reading from, we're, we're in the CSB here. Uh, there's, there's a translation. It, sometimes it says an appeal to God for a good conscience, or some translations have it like this, where it's a pledge to God from a good conscience. The, the, translate, the, the Greek words there are very malleable. The, the prepositions can be used in a lot of different ways. So some people say it's like, you're going through baptism saying, Lord, wash my conscience clean. I'm, I'm going through the waters of baptism and pleading for you to make me clean. Other translations, the way it's worded here is, Lord, I, am, I have a clean conscience. I want to follow you. I've repented of my sin. I think there's interpretive validity to both. I kind of lean towards this translation myself. But the point being, there's an action. There's an action. Uh, response to this good news of the gospel. God, I'm here. I'm going to get baptized. I'm pledging myself to you. And I know that for some of you, uh, this verse that says baptism saves you, 
might stress you out a little bit because the idea, like, why, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by grace alone through faith alone. We don't, we're not saved by any of our works. You're exactly 100% right. Again, Peter here is emphasizing the need to act upon the reality that's happened in the heart. No, no New Testament author, no apostle is advocating for a type of faith that's just a purely private internal faith. Every single uh, follower of Jesus, teacher of Jesus is trying to show us you need to live out what it is that you say you believe. There's a scholar named Alan Street who writes on this. He says, he says how then does baptism save or deliver the seeker? Surely H2O contains no salvific properties. Neither do humans have the innate ability to save themselves. While the flood was a saving event, God was the Savior. He saved Noah through the flood. Peter references Noah and the flood in this passage. He saved Noah through the flood. In like fashion, baptism delivers the believers from judgment through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Christ's followers submit to baptism, they identify in a demonstrative way with Christ's ignominious death and glorious resurrection and pledge their loyalty to God and his kingdom. Brooks calls it the drama of decision. Such a public act in the first century was not taken lightly. To side with Christ was to stand opposed to imperial Rome and its Lord Caesar. This may explain why these Christ followers were facing trials by fire. The same scholar has another section, I didn't want to quote it to you today, but where he talks about the usage of the word sacrament. That word sacrament is sometimes associated with baptism. That the word sacrament originally was a pledge that Roman soldiers would take. It was sacramentum was the word that they would use, where they would put up money and they would, they would make a pledge that Caesar is Lord. And early Christ followers started using the word sacrament about this baptism as saying, nope, Jesus is Lord. There's a, a, almost a quite literal renunciation of your previous life, your previous kingdom, your previous affiliation. I remember one time um, a good friend of mine that I worked with at a church in Alaska, he was an immigrant from Bolivia, and I got to be there at the courthouse when he took his oath of citizenship, the oath of the Constitution. Let me tell you what, all of us who are natural-born American citizens, you should read through the oath of the Constitution that they have to take for, for people who are immigrating to the states to become citizens. It's pretty remarkable. We, things that we take for granted. I remember having chills at that thing. Just, this is a remarkable event to watch someone renounce their association with the previous country and declare loyalty to the United States of America. How infinitely greater is it to be called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light? And in just a few weeks, on Resurrection Sunday, we are going to celebrate with the waters of baptism. It's coming up in a few weeks. I think last count, Jason, what do we have, 11 people to signed up to get baptized at those two services? If you have not been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not gone through this step of active faith, active obedience to the Savior, a public declaration that he has saved me, he has substituted himself for me, he's risen, he's ascended, he is the one that demands my full allegiance, please come find me, come find one of the other pastors after the service. We'd love to talk to you and explain this to you. Now, we know the backstory. We know the, the central character, Jesus, the Messiah. We know how to respond. Repent, be baptized. Repentance and faith. Now, we want to start going and telling everybody, but there's some barriers that the Apostle Peter highlights. And I have six of these. I want to walk through them quickly. There may be more, but these are the six that I see in the text. 
And so we'll focus on these. Number one, the Apostle Peter talks about a, a potential lack of preparation, being ready to give a defense. And that word defense, um, almost like the idea of defending your dissertation. If you've gone through graduate school and you have to come up with a, a master's thesis or a doctoral dissertation, you have to defend it. They're gonna, the, the professors, they're going to come and they're going to ask you questions. Well, what about this? And what about that? And did you miss that? Or did you think about this? And the idea of giving a defense means you've got to be prepared. So let me simply say this to you. As followers of Jesus, assuming that you are a follower of Jesus, can you articulate the gospel? And can you articulate your testimony And can you help those two things not get conflated or confused? You know where they are different and where they overlap. The gospel is the good news about who? Jesus. The testimony is the story of how Jesus changed who? Yes. Good job. You did it. Good job. It's pretty good. 9 a.m. service. We can can try this again. Okay. Uh, The gospel is about who? The testimony is about? Yeah, that's right. And how he has changed your life. So if somebody says, well, what is this gospel? Or tell me about Jesus. Can you give the basics about how God created all things and humanity has walked away and we've, we've, we've sinned and we need a savior and we need a redeemer? And, and, and can you explain and articulate Jesus as the substitute, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous, him as resurrected and raised from the dead and him as supernatural and him as ruling and reigning over all things? Can you articulate the gospel, and can you articulate your testimony? By the way, quick show of hands for some of you who, like me, met Jesus at an early age and feel like, man, I kind of have a boring testimony. Anybody like me? Good handful of us? Yeah. Praise God that you met Jesus at an early age. Praise God that he got a hold of you and saved you. I know the kind of train wreck I can already be having walked with the Lord from the time I was a little, little kid. And praise God that he spared me and and I believe spared you probably from a lifetime of destruction to yourself and to others in your lives. There is no such thing as a boring testimony, especially when you understand your own sinful tendencies. So praise God for that. Number two, he talks about The idea of fear of man. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. They're going to disparage you, he says in verse 16. This is is what I would call the idea of soft persecution. As a matter of fact, go go to the next one too. Fear of suffering in verses 14 and 17. This is hard persecution, imprisonments, beatings, uh, all of that, death, execution. Now, in our culture, we experience more of the former. We don't very often hear stories of people who their lives are in actual mortal danger, but uh, it could happen, I don't know, but we do have brothers and sisters around the world who do experience this right now. There are Christian brothers and sisters, pastors in Afghanistan. There are, there are followers of Jesus in Iran. There are a lot of, the, the reports coming out of Iran right now are remarkable to hear the work that the Lord is doing in a, in a Muslim-ruled country where there are literally penalties for following Jesus. Now, you and I have I've said this before. The, the cliche quote is that in other parts of the world, followers of Jesus fear the raised fist, and in the United States, we fear the raised eyebrow. But I don't want to diminish it too much, because being mocked and being disparaged, it does hurt. It is painful. It is frustrating. It does make us feel a little bit unsettled. Fear of man is a real barrier. Fear of suffering is a real barrier, but both of those are met in remembering the Lord Jesus, to fear him, to regard him as holy, 
to remember that Jesus suffered for us. No matter what suffering we might experience, A, it's not as much as what Jesus experienced, and B, Christ used his suffering to bring us to God, and we are promised an eternity that is suffering-free. So even if we should face the worst hardships and the worst suffering, what's the worst that they could do? Kill us? And then we just go to be in eternity in the presence of Christ until the day of the resurrection of the dead. Then we get glorified bodies, no more aches and pains, no more soreness, no more COVID, no more cancer, none of it. Perfection for all of eternity. That's, pretty, that's a pretty good deal. Number four, a barrier to our evangelism is a combative attitude. In verse 16, he says, always give a defense for the reason for the hope that's in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. There's a certain, it's it's really hard to live in the tension of boldness and confidence and this gentleness and respect. It's really hard. And there are certain tribes or certain strands of American Christianity that have leaned so hard on the gentleness and respect side of things that they maybe wouldn't say it quite this bluntly, but it's like, if we could just be nice enough, then everyone would believe in Jesus. No one was nicer than Jesus, and he was crucified. But there's another strand or another, you know, stripe that you see in American Christianity where just everything is fight, 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 fight. Everything is the sword, the sword, the sword. It's combative. It lacks gentleness and respect. It calls people names. Calls people, you know, whatever, snowflakes or whatever sorts of terminology of all these idiots or whatever. It's really hard to live in the tension. Yes, we have to be bold. Don't fear man. But don't have a combative attitude. Um, what I am teaching here, if I'm seeing this and, and, and properly understanding this, is impossible to do on our own. We really need the Spirit's help, amen? And we're going to need each other. No fear of man. No short selling the message of the gospel. No, oh, if we were just nice enough, everyone would believe. But no kidney punches for Jesus, okay? (laughs) Number five, and I wish I had time to do a whole sermon on this one. Another barrier to sharing the good news is just the weird parts of the Bible. And uh, verses 19 and 20, like, I would love to do a whole sermon on this. So he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were in the past disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. That is a link all the way back to a story in Genesis 6 where it says that the sons of God came down to earth and were having sexual relations with the daughters of men and what was birthed out of that was a race of beings known as the Nephilim who were giants and warriors of renown and then like second temple literature stuff like the books of Enoch and they really liked the Nephilim and the watchers and that, that part of the flood was to drown these Nephilim and then they became disembodied spirits and Christ is like Peter seems to be like linking into some of this tradition. It's, it's, uh, it's weird, okay? <laughs> And uh, sometimes, you know, in my life, I've devoted my life to studying and reading and teaching the Bible, and sometimes I come across things like, huh, what did the ancient aliens guys say about that part of the Bible? Like, there's just some strange things in the Bible. And friends, I'll just say this. We don't have to fear the weird stuff in the Bible. We don't have to fear the strange things in the Bible. 
We can study, and, and at the end of the day, maybe we won't even fully, like, what is, like, the Nephilim debate? Like, I don't know. I wasn't there. I've never met a Nephilim. I've met some big people, but I've never met a Nephilim, okay? We don't have to fear him. Often, sometimes, there's, there's important stuff in those weird parts of the Bible, but yeah, I don't understand it all. We don't need to fear it. Peter, I love how Peter accuses Paul of writing things that are difficult to understand and then drops this little gem about Christ preaching to the spirits in, in prison. I wonder if they're talking about that in heaven right now. And then lastly, the last one that I see in this passage is just apathy. Apathy. When he talks about this pledge of a good conscience towards God, like I'm actively preparing myself to be able to evangelize and share the good news of Jesus. No apathy. Friends, can, uh, how many of you could confess in honesty, like raise your hand, that sometimes, as you, the longer you walk with Jesus, sometimes you find your passion runs a little bit cold. Anybody? Friends, we have to just keep coming back to the gospel over and over and over again. On my own, unrighteous, sinful, Christ, perfectly righteous, victorious, resurrected, ruling, reigning. We keep coming back to the gospel. That's why our worship gatherings every single Sunday are always so gospel-focused. We sing the gospel. We preach the gospel. We eat and drink the body and blood of Christ to, to, to have this other visual proclamation of the gospel. Every single Sunday, we need to keep coming back to the message of who Jesus is, what he has done for us and for the world. And so let me close with a couple of points of application here as we think about renewed evangelism this week. Number one, pray. Pray for their salvation. Keep praying. Persist in prayer. That person that you love, that that person that you care about, that person that is destined for eternal separation from God, keep praying for them and do not quit. Number two, prepare yourself. Where are the barriers in your own heart? Is there fear of man? Is there apathy? Is there just a lack of education? You need to understand how to articulate the gospel. Prepare yourself. This doesn't happen just on accident. If this is important, if Jesus is important to you, then you, I mean, you know, move aside vegans and crossfitters. Like, devote yourself to preparing who you are to be able to proclaim this good news. Number three, present this message in context. And what I mean by that is, We have to learn how to share this message in different ways, different emphases, different tone, different ways, because not everyone that we speak to is the same. I was reflecting on my parents' ministry. My parents have done basically various forms of prison ministry, homeless ministry, and addiction recovery for my entire life. And the type of people that they're often presenting the gospel to don't think they deserve the grace of God. And I was contrasting that with the ministry that I've had now for the better part of the decade here in the North Seattle suburbs where most people have got you know, money and a car and I got a lot of Teslas dropping kids off at my neighborhood elementary school. And here, my parents, the people they're meeting to don't think they deserve the grace of God. Here, people don't think they need the grace of God. So we have to learn how to articulate the message differently if you're doing prison ministry versus suburban rich people ministry. That came out a little bit snottier than I meant it to, but... <laughs> It's just a different approach. And then lastly, number four, persevere as exiles. Nobody ever said this was going to be easy. If you thought that this was going to be easy, you haven't read the Bible. We will suffer. We will face opposition. We will face hardship. This world is not our home. This is not the way it's going to be forever. And so we persevere as exiles. 
We gather to sing, to be taught the word of God, to eat and drink at the table. We gather in small groups to minister God's grace to one another. We meet one-on-one to pray, to love, to serve, and we go out and we just persevere even when it's hard because Jesus is worth it. Amen? Let's pray. God, we come now to you and ask that you would renew us through the message of the gospel. Strengthen us to be able to go share this good news with anyone and everyone that we would come into contact with. Lord, I ask and pray that you'd help us identify the barriers in our own hearts. And even now, Lord God, as we eat and drink around the table, would you strengthen us and empower us and renew us to go out and share the good news of the gospel message. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.